Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. Today's date is May 21st, 2022, and in this video we got a twofer regarding Tucker Swanson McNear Carlson. Yes, that Tucker Carlson, applicant to the CIA, son of the former director of the Voice of America propaganda outlet, and all-around neo-fascist mouthpiece extraordinaire. There seems to be an undue amount of confusion, let's say, about where Tucker Carlson stands in terms of working-class politics. Let's be super clear, he is not pro-working class in any way. If you believe that, you probably believe that MAGA and Donald Trump are somehow also pro-working class. You're completely deluded. This is not a pro-working class movement. It exists to co-opt and confuse and lead working-class people into support for far-right, pro-capitalist policies. They're not anti-imperialist, etc., etc., etc. I can't even believe that this is a conversation that we need to have, but apparently people are this stupid. So, the twofer involves, first, statements by Glenn Greenwald about Tucker Carlson, which are, what can you say, cartoonish, a parody, I don't know. You know, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Hard to tell at this point. It's fucking surreal. Second, Brianna Joy Gray. Rambling for about 14 and a half minutes. Uh, just embarrassing comments, uh, but more than embarrassing, harmful. I don't know. Let's just, you know, I've had enough of this uh, entire Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, Brianna Joy Gray, Chris Hedges, Cornell West, that whole, you know, the axis of people I'm talking about. People who have quit the Democratic Party but aren't really sure of where they are afterwards and, my God, just flushed this shit down the drain. Oh, also, guest appearance by Kim Iverson at the end. Kim, dumbest person aliveerson because uh, Brandon Joy Gray's comments were on The Hills Rising where there's now an Iverson infestation. Just um, what is happening with this political world? Why is this shit finding an audience? But please, let's make it stop. All right, so the Glenn Greenwald article. In fairness, this is about a year old, but it's relevant. I was looking for an intro to the Brianna Joy Gray video, and this certainly will do. New York Intelligencer, March 4, 2021. Why Glenn Greenwald says that Tucker Carlson is a true socialist. Yes. Glenn Greenwald's long intellectual journey from center-left to far-left, not so sure about that, to, well, somewhere, is a subject of fascination in elite circles. Greenwald comes out of a tradition of progressive journalism that focused primarily on attacking liberals and the Democratic Party from the left. Like many progressives, he latched on to Bernie Sanders' two presidential campaigns as a righteous crusade to liberate the Democratic Party from the nefarious grip of its corporate neoliberal masters. So comment, this article is by Jonathan Chait, and that's obviously uh, somewhat of a mocking tone. However, here at this channel, I also latched on to Bernie Sanders' two presidential campaigns as a righteous crusade to liberate the Democratic Party from the nefarious grip of its corporate neoliberal masters. Rather, I didn't know if you know, you're going to break the hold, but I thought that it was a step forward for the left, which is largely unorganized because people uh, in the U.S. seem to have two speeds, trying to reform the Democratic Party and doing nothing at all. So I thought that maybe this could be you know, a step towards people realizing in, you know, by the tens of millions, the need for, for example, 
doing the obvious next step of joining and building the Green Party, or if it's not going to be the Green Party, although I don't know why it wouldn't be, something similar. But you have to move out of the Democratic Party and go to a party that doesn't take the corporate money, at least. So, yeah, I supported that as well. So, you know, as far as the mocking tone, this is something that needs to happen in the U.S. left because working people are just not politically represented at all. At all. There's no organization or minimal. We're starting to see things like DSA being built up, but it, it needs to go much more rapidly because there are fascist crazies everywhere and there's not a comparable amount of pro-working class organization to the point where people coming into this new at age 20 or 21 or whatever, starting to look around for the first time, they fall for this shit and they think that, you know, the sort of MAGA people are like communists or something. It's fucking crazy. It's weird. Anyway, after that, things got weird. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Some Bernie fans remained embittered with the Democratic Party. Comment, this is a horrible place to be. The left needs to leave the Democratic Party. They're just going to crush and use you. That's it. A handful of them broke with it, not only from the left on foreign policy and economics, but also from the right on social policy coming to believe that the party's elitist program was deliberately using facile identity politics to divert voters from a true working-class agenda. Let me just comment on that there. Surprisingly, this is about as close to an accurate statement as I've heard. Uh, That is a right position in the sense of right-wing, to be against anti-racist and feminist and pro-LGBTQ+, etc., politics. The problem with the Democratic Party is they don't uh, explore those things in an actually liberating way. They do it within the framework of class collaboration. So in other words, you know, they talk about class, race, and gender, but they reduce class rather than being the primary contradiction to just another status alongside race and gender, uh, and sometimes even trying to obfuscate it completely. Michael Parenti talks about this in Black Shirts and Reds towards the end, the ABC's Anything But Class Left. But recognizing that class, capitalism, class exploitation, exploitation of the proletariat is the primary contradiction, even that is in some cases simplistic because there are cases, for example, of wealthier black people still being targeted by the police, etc. So it's not uh, in 100% of cases in daily life, always the primary contradiction. Overall, in the system, you could say that, yes, it is the primary contradiction. But U.S. capitalism in particular, the particular history of this country, is absolutely mired in genocide, racialized slavery, etc. And the ongoing effects of that has helped to anchor the tendencies of reaction in a way that Without them, we would be much further along in terms of struggle and progress. So we actually need to focus on these things, as well as, like I was talking about, feminism, anti-sexist work. That is liberating. But the way that the Democratic Party presents it is within the context of class collaboration. Like, we don't need to focus on ending capitalism, or at this point, even really regulating capitalism much, according to them. They're in on the neoliberal project, as long as there are groups experiencing special oppression, you know, women, African Americans, etc., in positions of power within the capitalist system. That's the Democrat solution. So that is class collaborationist, that's right wing. But 
to just completely eschew any discussion of those special oppressions, what is sometimes called identity politics, that's also an error. So, you know, and this is the tip of the iceberg. These are some of the obvious ones, which if you're missing these obvious ones, it's a huge error. But there's also things like ableism, what it's like to be disabled within capitalism. This is uh, something that bears discussion. Not a lot of people really want to talk about it much. So anyway, back to the article. Greenwald took this impulse even further by positioning himself as a frequent guest on Fox News, where he would reliably bash the Democrats from the standpoint of the, quote, good progressive. The distinction between Greenwald's attacks on the Democratic Party from the left, or sometimes from the left, and the Fox News attacks on Democrats from the right has grown increasingly difficult to discern. Greenwald has finally erased that line and perhaps completed his voyage of discovery across the ideological spectrum in a new interview with the right-wing Daily Caller. By the way, the Daily Caller having been founded by Tucker Carlson. In it, he declares that he considers the Donald Trump of 2016, along with Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson, to be authentic socialists, unlike the center-left, which is, quote, about nothing more than trying to sandpaper the edges off neoliberalism. Quote, I would describe a lot of people on the right as being socialist. You would have to not know anything about U.S. history to, to make a statement like, I would describe a lot of people on the right as being socialist. I would consider Steve Bannon to be socialist. Yes, that's right, folks. Neo-fascism is socialism. Up is down. Left is right. Black is white. Right is wrong. Anything goes. Anything goes in the crazy neo-fascist upside-down world of Fox News and their guests like Glenn Greenwald. I mean, really, just who cares, right? It's a, like it's all over, right? End of history. We're here. Uh, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Words mean nothing, apparently. Continuing, quote, I would consider the 2016 iteration of Donald Trump, the candidate, to be a socialist, based on what he was saying. So, Glenn, uh, when he was in the rally in January, and he was telling the bouncers to kick people out of the rally and take their coats and throw them out into the cold, you think that guy's the socialist? Brainworms. I don't, you know, what is going on? Continuing the quote, I would consider Tucker Carlson to be a socialist, unquote. And to be clear, if they had had cable TV back in Nazi Germany, I, for one, think it would have looked and sounded exactly like Tucker Carlson. Greenwald's primary focus is on foreign policy and national security, where the ideological lines really are blurry enough to construct a halfway plausible case that Trump is to the left of the Democratic Party. It's certainly true that Trump has more dovish views on Russia, though his motives for cozying up to it and repeating Putin's propaganda are obviously deeply corrupt, a reality Greenwald has fanatically refused to concede. But Greenwald is now going well beyond that to define figures like Trump circa 2016, Bannon, and Carlson as socialists, not merely as enemies of the national security state. Pinning down a precise definition of socialism is a question that entire forests worth of books and articles have given their lives to answer largely in vain. Suffice it to say that any sane definition of socialism involves some combination of government regulation, redistribution of resources, and the power to effect more economic equality. 
comment. That's a terrible definition of socialism. This is a Marxist channel, so at a minimum we would talk about abolishing capitalism and the capitalist state, continuing the work begun under capitalism of proletarianizing the entire population, including the former capitalist class, and so on. Now, that's socialism itself. A movement for socialism under capitalism is a movement that is not in power, has not achieved its goals, and can look differently. Uh, you might have demands for regulation, or you might have demands for more worker power, but that is a movement for socialism under capitalism. Two different things. Anyway, I mean, not that I was expecting a great definition of socialism out of this article, but it's relevant when we're going to then talk about, is Tucker Carlson a socialist per Greenwald's statements? So, continuing, how exactly do the likes of Trump, Carlson, and Bannon qualify as socialists? Greenwald explains, or at least tries to, quote, I think the vision is, you know, you have this kind of right-wing populism, which really is socialism. No, 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 it's right in the name, right-wing. That's not socialist. So, anyway, you know, I don't know who's paying him to say this shit, but when you go to a far-right audience, like the Daily Caller, and you're talking about what they think that they're doing, right-wing populism, really being socialism. Uh, this is just an effort to smash socialism. That's all that it is. You're basically like, oh yeah, anti-communism is communism. No, and if you get people believing that, then you're never going to build communism, which is exactly the purpose of shit like this. Anyway, you have this kind of right-wing populism, which really is socialism, that says we should close our borders, not allow unconstrained immigration, and then take better care of our own working-class people. Yeah, except they never fucking do that, do they? They're, they're always like, no, we need to, uh, you know, stop helping other people so that we can take care of our own. It's like, okay, can we get, you know, Medicare for all? You know, fuck off. That, that's what always happens. They never do that. That's just a lie to get working class buy-in just so they can get you closer to better piss in your face. That's what it is. And not allow this kind of transnational, global, corporatist elite to take everything for themselves under the guise of neoliberalism. Well, it's not really under the guise of... It's, anyway, um, that is shit. Let me just read it again. Quote, I think the vision is, you know, you have this kind of right-wing populism, which really is socialism, that says we should close our borders, not allow unconstrained immigration, and then take better care of our own working-class people, and not allow this kind of transnational, global, corporatist elite to take everything for themselves under the guise of neoliberalism, unquote. Okay, now... Let's play a game. Glenn Greenwald or Alex Jones? Because that's kind of the thing that we're rubbing up against here. This sort of libertarian... But, see, even libertarians, uh, you get different things. Like, some are for full, completely unrestrained global capitalism, which, of course, is going to benefit the absolute biggest capitalists the most. And then you get some who have uh, some kind of, you know, national consciousness. And they're like, well, no, we need completely unregulated free market capitalism, but with some amount of protectionism for nations. And that's not fucking socialism, particularly in a 2022 context when we're talking about the most industrially developed advanced country on the face of the earth, the United States. 
you know, you can maybe talk about nationalist consciousness being a positive force of early capitalism when it's arising out of feudalism. That's no longer the case and has not been for an extremely long time. The U.S. bourgeois revolution was in 1776, 250 years ago. But again, nobody knows anything. Words mean nothing. People just make shit up. And so you get this kind of insane nonsense. Now, which class benefits the most from that kind of profound confusion and ignorance? Is it the struggling to barely be organized working class, which is reeling from austerity and, you know, low unionization, etc., etc.? Or is it the highly organized, highly wealthy, has all ten fingers on the buttons of power and the levers of the global economy, big capitalist class? I'm going to say big capitalist class, they're the ones who benefit. They know exactly what's going on. They're the ones who encourage this kind of shit. All the work here is being done by the brief reference to, quote, taking better care of our own working class people. The lack of detail in this crucial clause is striking. It's true that on some issues, Carlson has positioned himself to the left of Trump and the Republican Party. He criticized Trump's plan to repeal Obamacare, as well as his corporate tax cuts. Comment, the repealing Obamacare thing that... <laughs> The ACA, or otherwise known as Obamacare, was written by the insurance industry. If you know anything about medical billing at all, the changes made by that act that the insurance industry wanted are profound and they're not being repealed. It would completely represent an upheaval of the system that the industry, which is large and in charge, does not want. So it's not going to happen anyway. The problem is that every single Democrat also opposes Trump's tax cuts and the repeal of Obamacare. What's more, the Democratic Party proposes not just to keep Obamacare and repeal Trump's tax cuts, but to tax the rich even more and expand health care coverage. Eh, nominally. Nominally. They, they in fact fight, uh, you know, efforts to expand it dramatically. Biden ran on a public option and never mentioned it. It was on his website, but he never rallied people for it. It's really much less of a situation of everyone is on board with expanding it. The question is just to what extent. It's really more like a few, very few people, mostly not Democrats, people like Bernie Sanders, are in favor of Medicare for All. He's kind of the only one who ever independently mentions it. People otherwise only mention it in response to people like Bernie Sanders mentioning it. And so they come up with things like the public option, Medicare for all those who want it. They don't really believe in that. It's just sort of a, an attempt to water down the demand, but they don't want to do that either. They want to just water it down until people give up. So anyway, you know, lest we get the idea that the Democratic Party actually is really pursuing these things. And as far as the tax cuts, um, the Democratic Party, let's say at a minimum, is not fighting aggressively on that. So what are we talking about? Changing it, you know, two and a half percentage points? It's, it's a joke, honestly. Which, you know, a lot of the problem here in U.S. politics is that the Democrats suck all the air out of the room. The Democrats are a non-reformable party that is owned by the 1% and exists to further imperialism. It's just a fact. They get in the way of and try to co-opt and basically take out at the knees anybody actually trying to stand up to 
the Republicans this overall far-right push. The Democrats position themselves as opponents of it, and a lot of times they will, you know, if there's something good up, more Democrats than Republicans will vote for it. Overall, though, the party is controlled by finance capital. It serves empire, and so very few things actually happen in reality through the political process because the kind of opposition that the Democrats put up is a controlled opposition that is designed and paid not to go the distance. And, of course, they stand in the way of people trying to organize for something better, which is why we have to oppose them as well. But it's not to say that, you know, the kind of opposition that they sometimes say but don't follow through on that they would like to do, it's not to say that that's a bad thing. Just they're never going to do it. And that we can and must demand more and go further. Anyway, Bannon and Carlson don't believe in any of those things. So, true. Carlson likewise opposes increasing the minimum wage, enthusiastically supports fossil fuel companies' rights to dump carbon pollution into the atmosphere at no cost, and likes to use socialist as a term of abuse, a habit that usually indicates you're not a socialist. So, full agree. So, okay, we've done the qualifiers about the Democratic Party at this point. Again, let's focus on the claim here made by Glenn Greenwald that people like Trump, Carlson, and Bannon are socialists. Is this claim accurate? Forget about the Democrats for a second. Is that claim accurate? No, it is not. Note, however, that we have proven only that Carlson, Bannon, and Trump fail any sane definition of socialism. I can agree with that. There is still an insane definition, favored in parts of the right, which claims that Adolf Hitler was actually a socialist. By this definition, the political spectrum is a simple line, with one pole being laissez-faire capitalism, as articulated by the American right, and the other being any form of, quote, big government. Since fascism employs a great deal of government power, and sometimes even uses the term socialist in its self-definition, fascism is actually on the left. So comment... Uh, fascism is nowhere near on the left. This is an insane definition. We have a playlist on the channel, Understanding Fascism and Right-Wing Movements. One of the key things about fascism, and this may be relevant to remember right now when we're talking about Carlson, Bannon, Trump, etc. One of the things about fascism is it arises in response to a rising working class movement, oftentimes specifically a failed revolutionary moment. There was a revolutionary moment, but socialists did not seize that moment, and the moment passed. Then the bourgeoisie, having taken a moment to calm down again, gather its wits, and then launch a response, they come up with fascism, which takes elements of popular appeals and overall tries to usurp and co-opt radical energy, revolutionary energy, to co-opt it and direct it towards the preservation of the status quo, capitalism, the system that almost got overthrown in that past revolutionary moment. It is class struggle on the capitalists' part to hang on to their system by basically mimicking socialism, but without any of the actual radical revolutionary content, just some of the form, shape, and style. This is enough to fool dimwits who don't actually understand what's at stake or class struggle, can't do class analysis, etc. In other words, which class benefits from certain actions and movements. And 
they get hoodwinked into thinking that this is some kind of movement of the people when it is literally wolves in sheep's clothing trying to co-opt the actual outrage and interests of the working class, which are represented by socialism, the idea that we need to end capitalism, end the rule of capital, capitalist parasites, over society so that workers can direct our own activity and not have a lot of the work that we do get pocketed by, again, capitalist parasites who don't contribute anything to society, having fulfilled their historic mission of overthrowing feudalism and laying the foundation of an industrial society. Once that's been done, and once the core of the modern industrial proletariat has been developed, that modern class-conscious industrial proletariat, and the class consciousness is obviously the variable there, um, once organized, can take it the rest of the way and get rid of the bourgeoisie and continue development on to a fully proletarianized, classless society. That's socialism. That is revolutionary class struggle. People like Donald Trump, a wealthy landlord, <laughs> parasite in the extreme, does not represent any of that. Steve Bannon, his aide, does not represent any of that. Tucker Carlson, where do I begin, does not represent any of that. What they represent is not socialism, but occasionally right-wing populist appeals, which are in effect anti-socialist, that exist to preserve capitalism when it should be done away with. And whatever kind of social division of the working class, you know, along the lines of racist ideology, whatever it is, that they have to do to try to prevent the necessary class-conscious self-organization of workers, they will try to fucking do it. And that's why you get all this fascist, neo-fascist content and messaging coming out of this new right. It literally exists to deceive working people. Don't be deceived by it. It is not in your interest to follow it. It is in the interest of very wealthy people who are very much opposed to socialism and who have no interest in actually, quote, taking care of their own. Or actually, they do believe in taking care of their own, but it's not along national lines, it's along class lines. They want to take care of themselves and their own, meaning the other billionaires and the multimillionaires who work for them as basically managers, stooges, and lackeys. So, continuing, speaking about the right-wing view of like, well, you know, did you know that actually Nazi stands for National Socialist? Yeah, I did know that. It's a lie. Speaking of that, continuing the article, this was always a ridiculous way to understand fascism, the way that the U.S. right tries to understand fascism. It has become more obviously ridiculous over the past five years, which have brought actual self-identified Nazis into a broad coalition with laissez-faire conservatives. Comment, this was always the case with fascism. You go back to Oswald Mosley in England, it's always the conservative fascist alliance. Fascism is just an outgrowth of conservative movements. Sometimes it does, like in the case of Italy, incorporate some left-wing elements like syndicalist elements, but before long these get purged and the overall trajectory of the thing is not left-wing at all. You know, I mentioned this is a Marxist channel. Uh, even within the world of Marxism, there's constant struggle, even in socialist transitional societies that have done away with capitalism against counter-revolution, against backsliding, 
against right opportunism and deviations that would take the working class away from socialism and back toward capitalism. There's constant struggle and it's not always successful. Bottom line, people who call themselves socialist aren't always socialist. But in the case of fascism and Nazism, these people were explicitly anti-socialist, even if they occasionally made vague appeals that to somebody who is not steeped in this stuff at all might be a little bit confusing. But yeah, fascism, it's extreme conservatism, traditionalism, etc., etc. Continuing. There's a reason the Nazis called their 2017 Charlottesville torchlight rally, Unite the Right, Not Unite the Left. It's because they're on the political right. But yes, if you consider demagogic attacks on immigrants and the, quote, transnational global corporatist elite, combined with substance-free promises to, quote, take better care of our own working class to be, quote, socialism, then you can describe Carlson's brand of demagogic hate-mongering as socialist. In place of a redistribution of wealth, it offers working-class people the chance to direct their resentment at cosmopolitan elites and various brown-skinned people. Comment, and in the United States, many working-class white people jump at the chance to experience some of the instant gratification of reveling in that elevated whiteness, this artificial creation of a white supremacist society that, for those who are allowed to pass as white, get this day pass to, you know, slightly elevated privileges. This is a lot easier than doing the difficult, backbreaking, actually politically risky work of building a fighting working class movement to oppose capital, not just to suck up to it, and to content yourself with some of the token rewards that it dangles at you. Propelled by his unshakable conviction that the Democratic Party is the main obstacle to the progressive agenda, Greenwald has successfully completed his orbit around the political spectrum. He now finds himself hailing the socialist bona fides of a wealthy heir who uses racial resentment to direct the white working class away from material concerns. It's a National Socialist German Workers' Party now. End of article. So, you know, I posted this and a lot of people were posting comments like, yeah, Tucker is a socialist, the national kind. But even as a joke, I don't really like that because it is an insane definition and too many people in the U.S. who may be reading it really don't get the joke. They don't understand that the Nazis really were not socialists, literally were the exact opposite, were putting socialists in concentration camps. So if you don't see me reinforcing that joke, that's why, you know, I think that a lot of education needs to take place. And again, I think too many people are just too confused as it is. I get that it's a joke, but still. All right, now that we've kind of cleared a path for ourselves on this topic, let's pivot to the second part. Brianna Joy Gray on The Hills Rising. Just by way of introduction, um, I don't know what to say. This was one of the worst segments I think I have ever seen, and to me just demonstrates that this person, former press secretary for Bernie Sanders and contributor to The Intercept and elsewhere, just does not have a contribution to make. When it comes to, you know, any sort of mass departure from the Democratic Party, she just seems absolutely lost here. It, I want to say it's your brain on electoralism, what she does here, but it's way worse than that, actually. We're just going to have to take this line by line or, you know, piece by piece. Let's get started. Brianna, what's on your radar? 
Well, of course, as you all know by now, 10 people were murdered in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, by a self-described white supremacist who specifically sought out a predominantly black community and traveled 200 miles to kill black people. Among those killed were Roberta Dury, Dury age 32, who loved Whitney Houston, Ruth Whitfield, 86, a devoted grandmother, Celestine Cheney, 65, a breast cancer survivor, and Andre McNeil, 53, who was at the supermarket picking up a cake for his three-year-old son. Although some are trying to cast this homicidal event as just another murder in the context of a country that is always dealing with the consequences of having more guns than people, racism is not incidental to this story. In a lengthy document left by the killer, he explicitly lamented that because white populations on average have lower birth rates, that white people are making up a smaller and smaller proportion of the global and national population. To him, this is a problem. And his solution? To kill black people with a gun on which he had written, here's your reparations. As you've likely heard by now, the idea that white Americans are threatened by demographic changes is known as the Great Replacement Theory. It's a narrative that first gained traction on explicitly white supremacist websites before being mainstreamed by conservative commentators. All right, we're doing okay so far. I don't disagree with anything that she said. You have the Buffalo shooter who targeted black people specifically due to the racist Great Replacement Theory. This is basically white genocide. It's a theory that reflects the paranoia of the white settler colonist worldview, the basic insecurity of that position of being a settler colonist. In this case, it's a white supremacist society, the United States. It was founded on the genocide of all the people who lived on the land that is currently called the United States. And then there's also paranoia about the people who were brought over from Africa to be property, cheap labor to be disposed of as property who over the centuries have gained the rights of not being property, but being treated as people within this inhuman settler colonial society. And the fact that there is continuing struggle for more rights for working people across all races, and that we're going to continue, in fact, talking about the issue of racism, which is fundamental to this entire country's history, so much so that Republicans are trying to outlaw discussion of it by outlawing what they call, quote, critical race theory, which is really just any discussion of the basic facts of U.S. history, which it's a racist country. It's settler colonialism. That's how it works. So, yeah, being a settler colonist and trying to run or manage, enthusiastically participate in an exploitative, hierarchical, racist, anti-indigenous sexist, anti-LGBTQ or heterosexist, on and on, system like that, it's a precarious position. You're always paranoid that the people you're oppressing are going to overthrow you. And then what? You know, will they be as cruel as you were? So these are the fears that the settler colonist dominators have about, you know, discussions of decolonization and oppressed people gaining rights because they know that they have acted horribly, brutally, for a very long time towards these people, and they fear that some violence might be visited on them. Now, the reality is that when we talk about self-determination and decolonization, most people just want to live their lives. There may be some kind of punishment for the most like grievous war criminals or something like that, 
But for the most part, people just want rights. They want it not to happen again. They don't want to be oppressed. And they want to move on into the future in a happier way. Because they're not trying to run a settler colonist project. So all of that projection onto oppressed people of all these cruel impulses, this is just fundamentally a distortion, but oppressors don't necessarily understand this. So anyway, this great replacement theory has been making the rounds that there's, you know, some white genocide underway, that the settler colonists are going to be exterminated just like they exterminated other people, etc., etc. And there are way too many people who get caught up in this, probably before they know better. It's very hard to connect with any kind of left literature. That said, I mean, plenty of people don't get caught up in it. Though also, with that said, a lot of people do get caught up in it but in a more casual way. They don't take the extreme action of driving 200 miles to gun down people in a neighborhood that is predominantly of another ethnicity or race. But they may have views that are similar, they're just more low-key about it. I mean, that said, there are still way too many of these mass shootings in the first place. So, I don't know. I mean, really, by any metric, there's too much of this type of thinking. The U.S. at this point is kind of a war zone, drowning in fascism both overt and covert. So speaking of covert fascism, or barely veiled actually, let's go to the next segment now, or resuming the clip in other words, where she starts engaging with Tucker Carlson's, again, barely veiled version of the Great Replacement Theory, basically taking what he's saying at face value. She seems to criticize him in a way but then eventually goes down this massive rabbit hole that is... I can just see Tucker watching this and giggling because um, no right-minded person would take what he said at face value. It's an obvious dog whistle. Let's just play the clip. In the wake of the Buffalo Massacre, Tucker Carlson has come under scrutiny as perhaps the most high-profile purveyor of this narrative. He, of course, does not advocate for physical violence against non-white populations or anyone. In fact, Tucker Carlson is fastidiously race-neutral in his language, frequently adopting the famous colorblind quote from Martin Luther King and stressing that his interest is in protecting American culture and the American way of life. In fact, Fox News just tweeted this out on Monday. So what does Carlson say that has some liberals accusing him of culpability? Okay, so into the minefield we go. So I'd like to correct one statement. So She says that Tucker is the most high-profile purveyor of the Great Replacement Theory, albeit, I will add, you know, a slightly veiled version, but barely. And she says that he does not advocate for violence. I would add, he does not openly advocate for violence. And um, what is the point of this exactly? She starts off talking about the buffalo shooter and the, you know, poisonous nature of the Great Replacement Theory, and then... Literally, the whole thing is just in defense of Tucker Carlson from here on, at least in regard to the overall racist war zone that the United States is devolving into. No, Tucker is, quote, fastidiously race neutral. What? She then adds, I just, this is something else. Liberals accuse him. Like, she's going to make multiple references to what the liberals do. Like, what are you exactly? Anyway, continuing. Let's take a listen. 
Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Let's say that again for emphasis because it is the secret to the entire immigration debate. Demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. In other words, you're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it. So shut up. <laughs> I mean, they're trying to change the population of the United States. And they hate it when you say that because it's true. Our country's being invaded by the rest of the world. I mean, the state unequivocally, the country's being stolen from American citizens as we watch. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. Now, liberals interpret these statements about, you know, Americans, America being stolen, et cetera, as dog whistles, as veiled references to a white way of life. But Tucker Carlson never says that explicitly. And the more liberals accuse him of broadly being racist without being able to articulate why what he said is wrong, the more Tucker gains credibility. What she just did there is some of the most shameful, contemptible grifting that I mean, we're setting really, this is the age of grift, setting new landmarks, plumbing new depths in how low can you go to grift and prop up your fucking podcast. So she says liberals, of which I guess she is not one, can't, you know, pinpoint, they can't put their finger on what's racist about what Tucker Carlson is saying. I don't know how far your head has to be up your ass or how much money you need to be getting not to see that phrases like more obedient voters from the third world is just basically a substitute for the fact that Carlson can't say the n-word on air. Like what do you think he means by that? Why does he phrase it that way? Why do you think that that conception of people from other countries is laden with the kind of assumptions about, you know, docile, weak-minded people? I mean, just on and on. You think that we should just disregard all of that, let alone the entire context of more than a century of this kind of politics that Carlson is just picking up the mantle of. No. Brianna Joy Gray says, disregard all of that. Let's instead take Tucker Carlson at face value. He's just making a good faith argument about voting in the United States. Unreal. Not just unreal, depraved. Not to mention, what are the Democrats' immigration policies anyway? Like, is there even a grain of truth in any of this, let alone all of the racist connotations, the presentation of the whole thing, the argument that's being built on top of this lie. No, this is just another attempt to make racism respectable, to give it the veneer of some kind of good faith presentation. So now we've gone pretty much off of the serious consequences of the mainstreaming and, I mean, not just mainstreaming, but the fact that it's everywhere that you go online and there's just right-wingers screaming this stuff at you from every corner, that we're in this place and it has the kind of consequences of the Buffalo shooting. And now this is just basically Tucker Carlson PR firm, you know, cleanup crew. 
She's making it literally all about him and his defense, not really probing into what are the effects on society of all this. It's all like, oh, he didn't say that. He's fastidiously race neutral. I just wonder, you know, phrases like that. When this was being written out, was it thought that people in need of convincing on this topic were going to be swayed by that? And the more he entrenches his coveted victim status, he's primed his audience for exactly that type of you're a racist attack. Take a listen. A quick programming note, as the debate over immigration has risen to the top of the news in recent weeks, a number of figures on the left have denounced this show as racist. It's notable that not a single one of them has offered any evidence to support that slur or even bothered to rebut the arguments that we make every night. They just make loud noises about white supremacy and assume that's an argument. Of course, the rest of the media dutifully repeat that. Tucker's right. Liberals have largely been unspecific about what their concerns are with the great replacement rhetoric. Lies, lies, and more lies. So this is a socialist channel, this is a Marxist channel, this is not a liberal channel. That said, you don't have to be a Marxist to see what Tucker Carlson is doing. Many liberals, although they unfortunately have not yet, for one reason or another, come to the glaring conclusion that capitalism doesn't work, it's a transitional stage, we need to end capitalism and move on into building socialism. They haven't reached that yet. But it doesn't take that realization to understand that racism is not good or how to recognize it. So all of this, you know, oh, critics aren't being specific enough is hot air. It's just noise. First of all, it's not that complicated in the first place. A child literally could reason through what he's saying. I mean, the implications of it. It's, it's very flimsy cover. And earlier in this video, I mean, I laid out, you know, how this is settler colonial paranoia intended to further racial divisions, to weaken the working class against capitalist oppressors and settler colonialism generally. Hope that's clear. So this falls completely flat. I mean, Brianna Joy Gray was being roasted on social media for this being just shameless, shameless, disingenuous ass-kissing. Sometimes it really just is that simple. Let's continue the clip. But I will be. Tucker claims that his problem with immigration is that it will fundamentally change the voter rolls of the country to benefit Democrats. This is an explicitly political argument, not a racial one, which is why the claims of racism fall flat. But there's no need to evoke racism to find some fault here. Take a listen to this. Okay, so before we take a look at this, this is where things really start going downhill. So she is giving cover to Tucker's claim that what he's doing isn't racist. However, she is trying to do better than the, quote, liberals, again, of which she is apparently not one. And she's going to find fault with it anyway. She's going to succeed where, quote, the liberals, you know, those other people, have failed. She's going to point out what the actual problem is. And it's political, not racial. This is just... Uh... So she said before that he's primed his audience for that you're a racist attack. Yeah, being a racist, saying racist things, can do that. It doesn't make you wrong to say that someone's being racist when they are being racist. In fact, it makes you right, just the opposite. So now she's going to pretend to oppose what Tucker Carlson is saying 
without actually dealing with the essence of the overall message that he is delivering in the context in which he is delivering it. This is going to be the Olympics level turning a blind eye event. When something comes into your vision, you got to turn that blind eye immediately while still somehow dealing with some portion of what is coming at you. This only serves Tucker Carlson's racist narrative. The kind of literal controlled opposition that she is offering here. It's a fake opposition where she doesn't deal with the actual message and substance of what Tucker Carlson is doing. She is pretending to do a better opposition to it, which in fact is just going to take it at surface value. And then she is going to wind up with the most twisted thing that is so divorced from reality. Uh, she deserves every ounce of mockery she got for this. Again, depraved, deplorable, contemptible, just beyond the pale behavior. Really? The worst attack on our democracy in 160 years? How about the Immigration Act of 1965? That law completely changed the composition of America's voter rolls purely to benefit the Democratic Party. That seems like kind of an assault on democracy, a permanent one. But no, that was a good thing because in the end it helped Joe Biden. So in that clip, Tucker Carlson argues that the Immigration Act of 1965 was the greatest attack on our democracy since the Civil War. So what was the Immigration Act of 1965? Well, it eliminated the national origins quota system. Before 1965, Southern and Eastern Europeans, Asians, and other non-Western European or Northern European groups were severely limited in their ability to immigrate to this country. The Immigration Act of 1965 undid earlier discriminatory immigration acts like the Chinese Exclusion Act that explicitly barred racial groups, not on any type of merit-based system, but because they were considered to be from culturally or racially inferior countries. Now, the immigration system that Tucker speaks about nostalgically did get some big name approval from across the pond. One notable national leader said admiringly of our system, quote, the American Union categorically refuses the immigration of physically unhealthy elements and simply excludes the immigration of certain races. End quote. It's a nice compliment, tarnished somewhat by the fact that it's a quote from Mein Kampf. Tucker expressly laments the end of an immigration system that established quotas based on the perceived unworthiness of not just non-whites, but Italians, Eastern Europeans, as well as Asians and Africans. Now, Italians and other European groups were considered white prior to the 20th century, but if you think their inclusion on this list makes the list not racist, that's perfectly fine. But it is reflective of a bias that has nothing to do with American ideals, whether these groups share American values or whether they make good citizens. And that's what Tucker says he cares about, the rights of American citizens and the preservation of an American way of life. In the earlier clip, he complained that Democrats were replacing old voters with new voters on the voter rolls. But I'm a little confused about that because all voters are American, definitionally. Only Americans can vote. So we have to ask what makes the new Americans inferior in his eyes to the old Americans. Why are legacy Americans more equal than non-legacy Americans? What makes someone who has worked hard and struggled through America's difficult immigration process, who has learned the presidents and state capitals and answers to questions that most native-born Americans probably can't answer, less worthy of participating in the society than someone whose family came in, let's say, the great immigration wave of the early 20th century? What is it about their character that makes them a bad fit? Now, Tucker is right about something. 
The Democrats have hoped that changing demographics will inure to their political benefit. So I'm confused. Now, we just sat through several minutes of her talking about how, you know, Tucker Carlson is fastidiously race neutral, etc. And he's primed his audience for that you're a racist attack and it's political, not racial. Except as you just demonstrated, you know, as Tucker Carlson was coming out of his one six apologism to talk about the Immigration Act of 1965, this is explicitly about race because it's about quotas of who can come into the United States. But rather than, you know, continuing to engage with this idea and say, well, so actually all the people saying that this is fundamentally racist, this whole line of argument are correct, which she just argued against, thereby undermining her entire argument up to this point, she moves on to what Tucker is right about, joining him in slamming the Democratic Party. Again, I wouldn't be doing this video if she had stuck with, it's correct, but it's even worse. This whole thing is so tangled. Pundits like Steve Phillips, author of Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority, have traipsed the political circuit for years making this argument. And I hate it. In my view, people like Phillips are part of the rod at the center of the Democratic Party. They are responsible in significant part for its failures and are culpable in part for the rise of replacement theory. In a 2018 article at The Intercept, I criticized Phillips for arguing that America's growing non-white population is key to the Democratic Party's success, and that, quote, Democrats should not waste money appealing to white swing voters. The Democratic Party is useless today in part because it's been following Phillips' advice. For years now, the party has completely abandoned any effort to persuade voters of any race, to pass the policies they actually want, or even to speak with them with a modicum of respect. Part of the reason is that advisors like Phillips, a senior advisor at top liberal think tank Center for American Progress, believe that white votes are a deplorable lost cause. And non-white voters, they think, will inevitably vote for Democrats, no matter how much the Democratic Party abuses them. Remember when Joe Biden told black voters in 2020 that if they didn't vote for him, they ain't black? That was just a Democrat saying out loud what so many of them believe, that non-white votes belong to them. They don't need to be earned, but they were wrong. Can I just say, we started out talking about the Buffalo shooting, the real world consequences of the mainstreaming of white nationalist ideas. Then we went through the minimization of Tucker Carlson's contributions to said mainstreaming. And now we are on to moldy talking points about how the Democratic Party thinks that it, this has nothing to do with anything. And no, it is not partly culpable in the rise of great replacement theory. So she's talking about this one particular book. Yes, you see elements of this thinking in the Democratic Party. But the Democratic Party is useless to working people because it's owned by the 1%. And it serves empire in pretty much every conceivable way. It is completely restricted from doing anything for the working class in an independent way that the 1% does not approve of. And the only way for the U.S. left to get out of that is to build a separate party that isn't controlled by the 1%. Notice how I was able to say that without doing any apologies for racism. It's something that we need to fight and oppose, and that's 
all there is to it. If it starts to poke its head up in whatever new party we form or build up an existing party, then it needs to be combated. It needs to be combated wherever it's found. But what is this video even about at this point? It's like that axis that I was talking about, the Jimmy Dore, Brianna Joy Gray, Glenn Greenwald, etc. All they can do is just, it's like this fanatical repetition of a few talking points about the Democratic Party that, okay, it's a starting point perhaps, but you were just talking about the Buffalo shooting and white nationalism, and you're throwing it all away in order to, what exactly are you doing? Let's continue the clip. As I wrote back then, though much is made of the browning of America, the country is still 70% white. And electoral strategies that are wholly dismissive of that population set themselves at an unnecessary disadvantage. America's browning is largely attributed to the fact that Hispanics constitute the largest growing ethnic group in the country. But a majority of Hispanics identify as white, and one-third continue to support Donald Trump. The irony is that Phyllis's theory hasn't borne out. Democrats have so totally abandoned the working class, voters of all colors, that growing numbers of non-whites are looking for alternatives. Among Congress members, Republicans are the more vocal anti-interventionists right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene is out here outflanking squad members on the absurdity of giving aid to Ukraine while American babies starve. And Latinos are an important part of the Republican base. Now, this reality undermines Tucker's argument. Although he's right that Democrats hoped immigration changes would help them politically, they haven't. Not really. Not as much as people thought. Tucker doesn't have a strong electoral argument against immigrant populations who, on the whole, are more politically conservative and more religious than native-born Americans. And a slight liberal bias among first-generation immigrants disappears after a generation or two. They're ripe for Republican picking. And without the electoral case against immigration, I think it's fair to ask a hypothetical, as Tucker often does. What could be motivating him to see immigration as such an existential threat? Whose existence is really imperiled right now? The white American lifespan is declining right now for the first time in American history. The opioid pandemic is a scourge made worse by the COVID pandemic and the lack of universal health care. Wages haven't kept up, kept up with inflation, and both corporate parties are aligned against raising the minimum wage, even though we haven't had a minimum wage raise for the longest period in American history, and even though Americans have never worked harder for less. When Carlson focuses his ire on corruption by elites, he's right on the nose. But the fact that he fully understands that it's elite capture that's causing so many Americans to hurt right now makes it difficult for me to understand how he thinks that a relatively small and powerless immigrant group deserves as much focus as the billionaires stalling our wages, poisoning our baby food, and ruining the country. And focusing on small, powerless individuals rather than big corporations in control is dangerous, literally. We need to be clear about what people like the Buffalo Shooter are talking about when he talks about the Great Replacement. They're not just talking about the natural immigration and population trends that have existed since the first immigrants walked out of East Africa. To replace something is to put something new in the place of something old. It implies the old thing has gotten rid of, not simply added to. The threat suggested by Great Replacement isn't just low white birth rates or average immigration rates. It's something more pernicious, something akin to white genocide. And in fact, the Buffalo murderer describes the declining birth rate as, quote, mass genocide. 
And genocide is defined as the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. That's not what immigrants do. That's what the Buffalo shooter did. He hunted down black people so they could be replaced with so-called legacy Americans, a term I find kind of funny given that few communities have as deep historical roots in America as black Americans. After all, the Atlantic slave trade was abolished in 1808, meaning that the American descendants of slaves arrived here sometime before then. We predate the huge wave of European immigrants that arrived in this country between 1880 and 1920. 20 million immigrants arrived during those 40 years. Nearly double the number. Okay, I keep waiting for a sensible point to jump in here, and I'm just not finding it. This is like a plate of spaghetti as far as the lines of argument are going. She's reaching a few of the correct conclusions here. A few. But the amount of, like, Twitter-brain circle-jerk talking points that she has strewn throughout this entire tortured work, I'd be shocked if anyone made it through this segment. Just, uh, I mean, I don't... What was she doing here? And she's still going. I mean, I've kind of lost the thread at this point. You know, we have totally unnecessary mentions of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, it's upside down and backwards. Where are we going? Finally, we're coming back around to the Buffalo shooter again. But, like, what the hell? So, anyway, let's let her finish, hopefully soon. Of Africans forcibly enslaved and sold into bondage in the Americas over the span of 400 years. At this country's founding, black Americans constituted 20% of the population and comprised 16.5% after the Civil War. But that didn't last long. By 1920, at the end of the great wave of European immigration, the original racial fabric of this country had changed. The legacy Americans, black Americans, had largely been replaced. Now, I'm not sincerely arguing for a black version of replacement theory. I'm drawing this historical analogy to make a point. The idea that rapidly changing demographics can politically disadvantage a population is nothing new. Nor is the idea that some white Americans are so threatened by changing demographics that they feel empowered to murder blacks, Jews, Latinos, Asians, and Native Americans. Elites in this country have always understood that the best way to distract the public from their looting of wages and public wealth is to pit people against each other to divide them up by their differences. Mainstream new pundit, news pundits on both Fox and MSNBC would like to use racial strife as a deflection from core economic issues that hurt working people of all ethnic and national origins. That's why it's less important to focus on whether Tucker can be blamed for what happened in Buffalo and focus more on why there has been a proliferation of hateful rhetoric that makes working Americans see other powerless Americans as the source of their troubles. Uh, this has just gotten on my nerves, like, <laughs> unbelievably. Um, again, she's coming back around to, it's not so important to ask, is Tucker Carlson culpable here? We have to ask about the rise of this discourse. Yeah, which he obviously is actively contributing to. And he's just, you know, Tucker Carlson, in a sense, is just another podcaster who happens to be funded and propped up by billionaires. You know, anybody can write a script about politics, current events, whatever, and record it, you know, set up a camera, set up a microphone, and put it out there. But not all of us are being broadcast on the Fox News Network with enough exposure reaching, you know, houses that don't even have internet, but get cable, uh, you know, to hear this stuff. So you have to ask, you know, why does Tucker Carlson 
get that kind of exposure, that kind of promotion. So Brianna Joy Gray is basically talking out of both sides of her mouth here. On the one hand, yes, capitalists love to, you know, deflect away from class consciousness and criticism and attacks on the capitalist class by, you know, diverting people to infighting among the working class. Yes, absolutely. But she's also saying that we should somehow exempt people like Tucker Carlson, who are obviously the lackeys of such people and actively contributing to that kind of racist diversion. And she winds up without a leg to stand on. It's infuriating. I mean, I'm past the point listening to this of I'm just like bewildered at I can't believe she's still going with this just awful line of argument. Like, is she getting enough sleep? Are there drugs involved? Or just is this the result of a Twitter addiction? Because this is not a normal train of thought being expressed here. So much so that some folks resort to murder. We can't let this discourse replace important conversations about how we make this country live up to its ideals for all Americans together. And so I, I know that's a lot, but the point I just really wanted to make was that the conversation about Tucker, I think, is a little bit of a distraction from what the, the broader conversation about Great Replacement is doing and how much focus is being put on immigrants and immigration in a way that hasn't gotten enough scrutiny. And who's putting it there? Is Tucker Carlson one of the leading voices putting it there? You said so yourself. What is this? <laughs> what, what am I listening to? What am I watching here? And are these other two grifters going to have anything sensible to say about, you know, Brianna, I think you went off the rails about one minute into this, and then the rest of it was just like a car crash on a roller coaster track. Yeah, I, look, I think the best way to stop uh, the, the right from talking about the great replacement theory is just to point out what several of the things you pointed out in this radar, which is that it is not true that bringing in a lot of immigrant voters necessarily harms the GOP. As you pointed out, a lot of Hispanic voters, uh, actually, especially second generation, end up having conservative views. The Republican Party is recasting itself as a party for working class people, not just for white working class people, but for working class people. And it is gaining uh, regard among a, a lot of categories of workers and, and ethnic groups at Trump did really well in, in southern Texas, in Florida with specific immigrant groups. You know, the, the most hostile people to the GOP agenda are affluent white people right. in this country. <laughs> so, Legacy right. Americans. Right. So, it, like, that's right. true. And, and, and Tucker knows that because he rails against a lot of, the, you know, the college campus type people, some of the people I criticize a lot. So that, that's, uh, I, I think that's the, I mean, there are many knocks against the Great Replacement Theory, but that's, I think that, it, it, that should be the one that, hopefully would persuade the GOP that it, 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 it can win with immigrants. It's doing it. It's doing it. Well, I think immigration is always just going to be a hot button political yeah. topic. So I don't know if there's any getting rid of it, if there's any getting rid of railing against it. Um, one group is going to rail against it or the other group is going to because they view it as, yeah, as being used as a way, I mean, not not to use the term great replacement, but certainly they they see it as a threat, as a political threat, saying, well, this uh, the other political party is trying to import in people that are aligned with them. And I think that that argument is as old as time. I don't think that is new to Tucker Carlson or new to the climate that we're in right now politically. 
Uh, and if it weren't immigration, it would be something else. And it is other things, right? I mean, we're seeing constantly this pointing the finger, as you mentioned, Brianna, not focusing on the real issues that are causing the strife in middle-class America, the stuff that's actually harming the ability to buy homes and go on family vacations once a year, you know, the, the good to live the American dream, the stuff that's attacking that, um, you know, we're not focusing on that at all. Instead, we're doing a lot of finger pointing and it's either it's immigrants or it's going to be uh, you know, woke liberals and trying to get rid of police officers, or it's going to be, you know, the crit critical race theory or, or it's Nazis and everybody's a right winger. You know, there's always some sort, some sort of finger pointing and mm -hmm. blaming and, and most of it is unproductive, but I don't think we're going to get rid of the immigration debate in this country. I think it's just a debate that's been as old as time and it's been around forever and I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, liberals talk about their own version of great replacement theory, so they don't have to talk about the real issues. And Republicans are happy to talk about these kind of culture wars, not have to talk about the real issues. And I'd love for everyone just to wake up and not be uh, so seduced by it. Uh, thank you guys both for your engagement there. But next up. Okay, I feel dumber for having listened to that. Let's see if we can sort of pull ourselves slightly back from uh, that closing commentary. So the first guy was talking about how great replacement theory is not true, but he's talking about the political sense. And also, you know, this really overlooks like the role of myth here. You think that everyone is interested in truth because I got news for you. Fascists are not interested in what is true. If everyone was really interested in what is true rather than what feels good, we would not have a lot of the problems that we have. Not everyone is interested in what is true. But beyond that, this entire closing commentary just took us so far, I think, from the point. They're trying to talk about the this sort of political aspect or this political reflection, in a purely political sense, of the great replacement paranoid fantasy, hallucination, delusion, whatever you want to call it. This is beyond rational politics. So we need to address why are we actually at this point. We're in greatly declined capitalism that no longer can deliver a lot of the things that it rode through the 20th century on. Yes, it's true that industry can still produce all the stuff that people need. However, it can't do so as profitably as before. And capitalists are getting desperate, both parties now. Uh, are in on the neoliberal consensus that it's austerity, war, etc., etc. So that's where we're at. That's where both parties are at because that's the 1% consensus and the 1% owns both parties. So we get this discussion here in the closing comments about how, well, you know, we can stop shootings by um, just explain to Republicans that actually immigration can be helpful to them. And, uh, you know, you're going to win with Hispanics and blah, blah, blah. That's not why people are picking up guns and doing racist attacks. This is when I said before, it's kind of this is your brain on electoralism, but much, much worse. It's because these people are sitting there behind a desk thinking purely in terms of like Democrats and Republicans. They don't see the overall class struggle. They don't see the overall genocidal history of the United States. So when you're talking about, oh, we can, you know, talk Republicans down from going on the mass shooting by explaining to them, you know, they can keep winning. And, okay, then you have a successful Republican Party. Well, let me ask you this. 
What do you think the Republican Party is fundamentally? It's a representation. It's an extension of the genocide that the United States was built on. It's an extension and representation and embodiment of all the oppression that built the United States into what it is today. It's not a purely rational entity. What is shaping the United States is murderous greed, an economic system of ruthless competition, the profit motive slash profit mandate. People at the top of the system literally have to do anything up to and including enslaving and murdering large numbers of people. Literally anything they can get away with just to stay on top. So trying to focus on a political extension of an overall genocidal racist idea is you're putting on the blinders to an extent. You know, if this is the kind of analysis you're getting on a regular basis, looking at rising and stuff like that, and these bizarre, confused talking points about Republicans are actually more progressive on some issues. Um, I don't know what to tell you. You don't you're not getting actual anti-imperialist analysis at all. You're not getting any kind of class conscious analysis. You're getting this sort of Twitter brained electoral grifter podcaster analysis. This stuff nauseates me to no end. Of course, Kim Iverson had to throw in the, you know, and part of this insane discourse is the, you know, everybody's right wingers, everybody's Nazis. Poor taste for a segment that was about a fascist inspired mass shooting. And then uh, the bulk of the segment had to do with sort of minimizing Tucker Carlson's role in this when he is a leading voice mainstreaming that kind of narrative and emboldening more and more people to partake in the fascist meltdown that is late stage U.S. empire. I'm going to leave it there. I'm sure that a lot more could be said about this video. I am just, I need a break from this video. Let's put it that way. Uh, what do you think? Leave a question or comment in the discussion area below. We'll continue it there as always. Otherwise, thanks for listening. And thanks to the current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen, head to patreon.com slash socialism for all. We don't run ads on this channel, so the Patreon support is really valuable. You can support for as little as $2 a month or more. Helps me to spend more time on this channel and to create more content. I have bills and it helps me to pay them while I'm sitting here recording stuff like this. Then, after the content has been produced, engagement helps, so liking, sharing, subscribing, and commenting on the videos, all of that is very important for continuing to boost the channel, keeping it growing in the YouTube algorithm, and making it easier for people new to the channel to stumble across this content. It is socialism for all, and that sort of accessibility is a major priority. Thanks again for watching, and we'll catch you in the next video.